This is no ordinary sub shop. This is Firehouse Subs. Welcome to Firehouse. Tired of overpriced lunches that underdeliver on flavor? Head to Firehouse Subs, where for a limited time you can get a $4.99 choice sub. Choose from a medium smoked turkey, Virginia honey ham, or roast beef. They're custom-made hot subs at a price ready-made to make you smile. Just $4.99, only at Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs, save more lives. Participating locations plus tax limited time offer prices may vary for delivery. Infirmary Media. In decades, the Matrix and Blade versus Bloodsport and Renegade. Strap on that cap, bust out the power glove. Come fight for what you love. Who culture popping pins, dropping hand grenades? Van Halen locked in Mortal Kombat with David Gray. Found out ballet and sick. I am made of GNR. Come fight for what you love. Broadcasting from the new Infirmary Media Studios. It's the Adult Audio Retro Game Show where the 80s and 90s do battle because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. Let's take a look at this week's duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, the challenger. Dueling with his birthday in 1987. It's Man Crush. That's right. Back again, trying to get the uh, the title back. Joe's had it for a little while now, working on close to two months maybe. But uh, yeah, doing uh, April 13th of 1987. Happens to be my ninth birthday, and uh, I try to stick to things that I cared about for this. So I'm not going to be slathering you guys with any like political nonsense or warmongering or like death stories. Uh, you know, it's pretty interesting. You go back and you look at your birthday. You know, I really enjoy digging this stuff up. So, but you know what? The other thing is, like, since it was my birthday, I try to do my research with local newspapers and things like that to keep it all fresh. See if I can remember some shit. Pretty different from a normal episode where we'd go uh, globally or, you know, nationally. So a little bit different. But yeah, April 13th, 1987. And dueling tonight with his birthday in 1993. He is the current dueling decades champion. Hailing from St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada, Joe Finley. It's the glad-handed, broad-banded, broadcasting, podcasting, kissing the ladies and dissing the 80s. I'm here voluntarily for miscast commentary. It's Joe Finley, and that name is spelled with an A. Hey, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it's exciting. Uh, My birthday, this is my 12th birthday, uh, this one, and... A depressing day it is because this is near the anniversary of Pearl Harbor, not the anniversary of Pearl Harbor, but near it. It is also the anniversary of a uh, brutal mass shooting in a women's school, uh, women's engineering school in Montreal that happened. It's like always just bummer shit happens on my birthday. And then when you go to celebrate it, the news always brings it out. Hey, by the way, (laughs) just in case you were happy. Well, at least least I'm bringing uh, sunshine and rainbows to this. Nope. Not this time, baby. <laughs> but it's funny, and I sent this to Mark earlier. When you do this stuff, and I dig through newspapers like page at a time, and I find like these weird stories, and sometimes I clip them out just because, or sometimes I share them with Mark or whatever. Two things that I came across this time, that has nothing to do with the episode, no points involved, but mm-hmm. they're worth sharing, all right? Every once in a while, I get a newspaper that has singles ads in it, and these are always, I always read through them. <laughs> this has to be the creepiest one that at least this time that I found, all right? It says the title is 
Two white males, 41. One divorce, no dependents. The other single. We both have very young, pleasing appearances. We enjoy meeting attractive, slim females. Age, height, unimportant. Please write box A11 to this newspaper. Now, why would two males want a female? It's like, what? Because most of these ads are pretty normal. It's, you know, like single white male looking for right. single white female. No, this one is two white males looking for a female, attractive female. Jeez, why don't they just yeah. come out and say it? <laughs> I mean, at that point, that, wow, yeah. can you make it any more obvious in the 80s? Oh, man. I feel like if they just had a few more characters, it would be to kill and eat you. Right. Yeah, seriously. It, you don't know if they want to fuck or if they want to murder yeah. you. It's it's one of those things. But speaking of murder, this is the one that I sent to Mark speaking earlier. Speaking of murder. So I've watched the uh, the Tupac documentary not too long ago. So I remembered that Suge Knight played football for UNLV. So I was like, I, I came across this article and I was like, hmm. So this is the article. It's a UNLV grid star shot to death. A UNLV football star was shot to death during a drug deal, police said. Andre Dwayne Horn, 21, was shot during a dispute on a street in Southeast Fresno Sunday night, then staggered two blocks where his assailants caught up to him and shot him again, police said. Horn was a linebacker for the UNLV uh, running Rebels in 1985. Uh, He was expected to play for the Rebels again in 1987. Well, guess when Suge Knight went to UNLV? Hmm, When? (laughs) 1985. And what position did Suge Knight play? What was he a defensive end? Oh, he wasn't a linebacker. <laughs> oh, that I don't. That I'm not sure of. But the dude's tied to a bunch of fucking murders. Can you imagine? Like this pieces together uh, would not shock me in the slightest. No, seriously. And then I read that story, and I'm like, wait a minute. Suge Knight went to UNLV in 1985, didn't he? And I looked it up. Sure enough, he did. Wow. Crazy shit you come across. You never know. You may just solve a crime here on Dueling Decades. <laughs> Seriously, that's all assumption. There's no tie to that. It yeah. was just putting two and two together and it being a little odd. Yeah. But anyhow. Let's all tell Suge, we're not accusing you of anything. Be cool. <laughs> well, we've already established on the last time you were on. Suge Knight, good yeah. friend of the show, <laughs> yeah, exactly. loyal listener. So. Love him. Yeah, from jail. Well, you know, guys, as always here on the show, we need someone to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So tonight, I, Mark James, will step into the box for this big birthday battle. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules and is for the Dueling Decades Championship. A judge's coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, Music, news, and tonight, hot products will be replaced with sports. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And the winning decade shall be decided by the highest overall score after all five rounds. Duelers, get ready to blow out those candles as we play Dueling Decades. All right, so for tonight's official toss-off, I have an audio cassette of Guns N' Roses' Use Your Illusion number two. All right, Man Crush, you are the challenger. You call it. Do you want side number one or side number two? I'm going side one. First song, Civil War, I believe. That is. Yeah, let's do that. All right, we're flipping it. And it is... Side two. 
Oh. Joe Finley starts off the game with control of the board. Joe, what category are we starting off with for a one-point round? This is a tough one. I want to preface this entire challenge by saying, oh, my God, what a challenge it is to find something for your birthday on these things, which may, which I loved the challenge of trying to hunt things down. Uh, we did discuss with the governing bodies due to like the location of our birthdays. Mine was on a Monday. As was mine. Yeah. So, so we it worked are, out well. Yeah. So we are uh, looking for the nearest weekend of mm-hmm. movies. Uh, I also have a piece of movie related news here. So I'm going to start with that. Uh, December 6, 1993 was the day that uh, famed character actor Don Amici passed away. Uh, Don Amici is known for Heaven Can Wait, Trading Space, uh, Trading Places, Cocoon, Harry and the Hendersons, Coming to America. He was the voice of Shadow and Homeward Bound. He's one of the select group who has two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, one for film and one for radio. Uh, he's on in that list with people like Lucille Ball, Walt Disney, Alfred Hitchcock, Orson Welles. And uh, yeah, that just happened to be the day that he passed away, but he was in a lot of, you know, uh, classics, especially in the 80s, but with the trading trading places and cocoon and whatnot. So, yeah, really starting off on a high note. I like it. I tell you, it's December 6th, man, is just a depressing ass day. I can't imagine my parents were thrilled when I was born. But it was. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is actually on your birthday. This, this one landed this, on your birthday? This one landed on my birthday, which is why I capped it. Uh, okay. And then we wanted to talk about uh, top movies. Of the weekend, so I have the weekend of December third to the fifth, which is the, the previous weekend, obviously. Uh, so number five was Carlito's Way. Uh, number four was the nineteen ninety three version of Three Musketeers. That was your uh, Kiefer Sutherland, Charlie Sheen, and Oliver Platt version with Chris um, O'Donnell as D'Artagnan. Uh, Adam's Family Values comes in at number three. A Perfect World, number two, and Mrs. Doubtfire was number one. I will give uh, special, just little notable things. Uh, Jurassic Park was still in the charts after 26 weeks of being uh, on the list. Obviously, this doesn't count towards my thing. I just thought it was. I just thought it was fun. Uh, he was. It was in there for 20, uh, 26 weeks, still on the charts. And The Nightmare Before Christmas was about two months in at this point, and still in the top ten. So those are my All movies. Right. Um, Mark, I, I hope you play a somber track behind Joe's pick constantly. Oh, for, dude, it's... for every round because I feel like I started. Joe's cheering. bringing this down. I'm I'm gonna bring this up. All right, man, crush. Over to you for the movies round. All right, that's right, movies round, not movies news. I'm gonna go with the movie. Uh, so released on April 10th, 1987. Uh, like Joe was kind of saying before, we had to go to the Friday prior to our birthday. Since both of our birthdays landed upon a Monday, this movie was tops that week, uh, coming in number one in the box office for the following week. And this movie ended up making $110 million worldwide, which would be $250 million in 2019. So that's pretty damn outstanding for a rom-com. All right. The movie itself, it's pretty good, but I'd say the popularity stems from the fact that MJF is the star of this film and, I know Mark's looking at me weird, but I'm I'm talking about the heyday of MJF and not Maxwell J. Friedman, of course, but the real <laughs> MJF, Michael J. Fox, and the movie I'm talking about is The Secret of My Success, which came out, again, April 10th, 1987, 
You got Helen Slater. She was the lead actress and the uh, the love interest in this movie. Pretty solid casting. Although one thing that I came across in this, Christy McNichol was actually supposed to be that lead first. Yeah. And they hired her, but then they fired her a few weeks before the movie because I guess she's bipolar and they were scared of her like acting out on set. So they, I don't know if wow. I, I read that in a few different places. Yes, you could get away with anything in the 80s. Yeah, we don't want to hire you because of your mental illness. Yeah, it's pretty fucking crazy that I, I saw that. Uh, I never heard about that before. But, uh, you know, this is the thing that I th- it's good and bad, that casting, because Helen Slater is four inches taller than Michael J. Fox. I had to look that up. Yeah. So there's a lot of like kissing scenes where he had to stand on stilts and shit like that, where if they would have casted Christy McNichol, who's five, three and Michael J. Fox is five, four. It would have worked out okay, but then if you look at them face to face in the eighties, they almost look like fucking brother and sister. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know there is, that is a little weird. So you know whatever. Uh, but the thing you got to keep in mind here: this is the heyday of MJF. But he was also on Family Ties from eighty two to eighty nine, and he did all one hundred seventy two episodes of Family Ties. So the only time that MJF had time to film was in the off season. So it's a kind of, it's it's a little bit of a shame that you know he had you know Parkinson's and all that, but we got him in the '80s. But we didn't get as much of him in the '80s as we probably could have if he wasn't on Family Ties. We would have gotten more movies. But again, it's a good flick. It's still good if you watch it now. It it holds up. I think it's on Amazon, but yeah, I think you have to rent it on Amazon. Uh, it is not free on Amazon. But let me get into uh, my top ten. All right, so. We're running this a little bit different. And that's why Joe did it before. To keep things fair, we decided to make the second selection in movies, TV, and music a listing of you know your top five or ten from that week. Because you're not going to always get two gems when you're picking your birthday. And we don't want right. to throw two shit things out there. So this is the way we were doing it to balance things out, keep it kind of even. So here's my top ten for the week of my ninth birthday in 1987. Of course, like I said, we had uh, The Secret of My Success at number one in the box office. Uh, took in number one. I actually did the following Friday so that I can I can throw that out there. Uh, two, we had Police Academy 4. Uh, three, we had Blind Date, the uh, Bruce Willis flick. Uh, four, I've never actually seen this one, but the Aristocats Disney uh, cartoon. Of course, five, we had Lethal Weapon is still around. Then we got a uh, six platoon raising Arizona, 10 men, nightmare on Elm street three at nine and burglar, the Whoopi Goldberg epic film with, uh, isn't Bobcat in that? I think, uh, at rounding it out at number 10. So that's, that's my top 10. Actually, this is a fun one. This doesn't count, but I, I came across this. So I'll throw this out there. It's actually the top video cassette rentals. For the week of my birthday, which I thought was kind of cool. Again, this doesn't count. But uh, number one, anybody want to guess what the top rental of April 13th, 1987 would be? Man, I thought Mark was going to have it. It looked like you were going to say the first word. You stopped. My first initial thought, Jane Fonda's workout. No, it's not. It's not. I got nothing. Top Gun. Oh, shit. That was Top out Gun on, was one. Really? I didn't think that would have yeah. been out on VHS rental at that time. Well, it's a, it came out in 86. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I remember they just took so long before to get out on, 
on VHS tape at that time. I thought Top Gun might have been one of those big ones that they held out for a while, like E.T. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And then all of these that are in the top five are Aliens, probably same deal, Stand By Me, Ruthless People, and then The Fly. Uh, great movies. Rounding out at number five. But it's funny that you said the Jane Fonda thing. Top video cassette sales, Top Gun, number two, Jane Fonda's low impact aerobic <laughs> workout. Number three, Jane Fonda's new workout. Yeah, I knew she had to be on there somewhere. Didn't know if she had uh, <laughs> creeped into the home rental market at that point yet. But Yeah, I don't think people were renting that shit. They wanted that long term so they can get them firm buttocks and thighs. <laughs> All right, so let's take a look at this movie around here. Uh, Joe, you got uh, Donna Michi dying, man. That's such a bummer way to open the show. This is the cheeriest thing I've got for you today. So, Jeez, and thanks for <laughs> fucking ruining Cocoon for me. I thought he was going to live forever after that shit. <laughs> but at the theaters, man, you got some of my absolute favorites. Carlito's Way, Sean Penn, Al Pacino. It's an absolute classic. One of my all-time favorites. And you gotta love Mrs. Doubtfire. I think we've all seen that movie thousands of times. It's very quote-worthy. So really solid choices uh, going into the movies theaters. And uh, Man Crush, Secret of My Success. Oddly enough, my favorite non-time travel Michael J. Fox film. (laughs) Yeah, I would say either that or... um... What was the uh, the horror one he was in in '96? The Frighteners with Peter Frighteners. Jackson. I love that flick. I just can I brain farted on the name, but yeah. And then Dang for you it. at the theaters, you had uh, again Secret of My Success, Police Academy Four, The Aristocats, uh, Lethal Weapon, Nightmare on Elm Street Three. Lots of big choices there. So overall, I gotta give round one to Man Crush. A little bit more solid choices at the movie theater for me. Carlito's Way and Mrs. Doubtfire, there's two choices. There's no way I am paying to go see The Three Musketeers or Adam's Family Values. But in 87, <laughs> way more choices. And uh, Secret of My Success coming out versus Donna Michi dying. I got to start off the round on a positive tip. So, Man Crush, you get the first point. All right. I'm glad you're on a positive tip. Let's uh let's move on. Uh shit. Where do I want to go from here? It's interesting because like we normally do these, I think there's always a cut and dry like your worst picks. In this I don't really see that because like I said before, I kind of try to stick to things that were relevant at the time with me or you know maybe my older sister or something like that, but I don't think anything's like that far off. So Let's go to fuck it. Let's do sports since we're not we're not doing hot products this week uh, because it's a, another truncated version. So we're going to go with sports here. Yeah. And I listened this time. <laughs> and Joe did not come with a hot product. <laughs> if you did, that would be pretty fucking impressive, though. I was the hot product. OK, so what I did with sports and this is something I talked about in prior episodes, I think when I was judging before where I didn't particularly try to shoot for a game or something that happened. I try to look for something that had a little bit more legs to it. Uh, I did have, I could have picked Jordan hitting 50 points, but he did that how many times? Even at this point, he did it seven times in his career in 1987. This was number seven, yeah. so who cares? And then the other thing I could have picked was uh, the Padres hitting three straight home runs to start off a game, which is kind of cool, but it's happened before also. So 
where I went, I, I try to pick two polarizing figures from sports that were around forever that everybody knows. And the first one, and I didn't even know this, I had to go back and look this up, but Boston Inks, Roger Clemens to a two-year contract extension on April 13th, 1987. Why is that important? Well, it's important for two things. One, Roger Clemens was the 1986 American League Most Valuable Player and Cy Young Award winner. It was only his second year in the league. He was 24-4 and the year prior. Of course, they lost to the Mets in the World Series, but he was a dominant figure in his second year. So what this guy did, because he only got paid $230,000 that year. <laughs> For a 24-4 and record, he got paid $230,000 and a $120,000 bonus. So he held out all of spring training for a contract extension. And he didn't come back, of course, until he signed this deal. The reason this is big news is because this didn't really happen that much back then. And even now with these younger players, they got to go through arbitration and they're, there's really nothing they can do. Yeah, you could sit out a season if you want, but that's what he was going to do here. Uh, and now it's like kind of commonplace with guys in the NFL, like you had Le'Veon Bell do it. And now they're always threatening to do it when they get a franchise tag. And in this case... He held out through spring training. Uh, he signed on April 13th. They didn't disclose the terms, but what people reported that they think it was was about a $2 million deal, which is a huge, huge upgrade from $230,000 for a guy that got the MVP and the Cy Young Award. But the thing, like this guy was such a douche in both of my stories about two guys that are were amazing athletes are just both kind of dickheads. It really sums it up in this uh, this quote from him. He said, I'm very happy this day came. I don't have any hard feelings. I knew things would be worked out for the best for Roger Clemens. <laughs> oh, wow. Good thing you're playing a team sport, bro. Yeah, I wish every interview he gave was always in the third person. Oh, God. That's amazing. Now, question for you, man, Crush, before we get too far away from that. Was this Clemens's final Red Sox contract? No, I think. I think he did get another one in he, 89. Okay. After I wasn't was sure over. if this was the, the first extension or second. So no. So this would be his first extension ever. Right. You know, at this point, cause he should be playing on his rookie deal, but since he held out, they, they kind of bent the rules and I'm sure this probably led to other things where the league, you know, building the arbitration system and all that shit, you know, along the line, I didn't get into all that, but I thought it was kind of cool that this was the day that he did that. And of course he's still not in the hall of fame, but the guy's, probably one of the best pitchers ever but he he kind of played through the steroid era so yeah they're they're kind of fucking turning their backs on him a little bit they're gonna put him in that special steroid wing of cooperstown <laughs> yeah eventually you gotta let those guys in we talked about it before with mike at length it's the most exciting time in baseball open up the gates already for these guys yeah because i'm serious whatever. man build a whole new wing of cooperstown that's just the steroid wing. Make it a little bit bigger and bulkier than the rest of the museum. It'd be great. <laughs> All the lights are shaped like asterisks. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it would probably be the, the best thing to see there, because after you've seen it like once or twice, it's pretty boring. All right. So what else do you got for sports? All right. So the second one here is about a guy that we just had. If you pay attention to the page, we do this trivia thing all the time. The trivia is like our bridge between our social media in our show and we're running like every day in our Facebook story. We have a picture trivia for points every week before the episode. We have one audio trivia question for points and we have this leaderboard. There's th over 300 people now on the leaderboard. There's a lot of people playing 
This past week, we had an audio trivia question and nobody got the answer for four days and it ended up going for 40 points. And the answer, of course, was Brian Bosworth. And that's where this story is about. So basically what Brian Bosworth did, April 13th, 1987 was the deadline to apply for the April 28th NFL draft in 1987. But he did not do it because this is what he wanted to do. He wanted to go into the supplemental draft, which is a second draft in the summer. Typically, it's used for guys that got booted out of school or they're on academic probation or whatever have you. Like they're in trouble with the law or some shit like that, or they graduated early or late or whatever. So he wanted to go there because he wanted to control the team he was going on. Because, of course, in the NFL draft, the worst teams draft first. He didn't want to play for a shitty team. So he figured by doing this, he would control where he went. So along with not applying on the 28th, he also sent a letter to all the teams in the league that he did not want to play for saying, I don't want to play for you. Don't pick me in the supplemental draft because I haven't graduated school yet. If you draft me, I'm just going to go to graduate school and I'll go to the draft next year. You'll lose your rights. So he goes to the supplemental draft, as we all know, in the summer and gets picked by the Seattle Seahawks, who happened to be one of the teams that he sent a letter to. Fuck it. But you know what? It did work out for him, even though he only played two years in the league. Of course, he had a shoulder injury and never played again after his second year. And of course, he got run over by Bo Jackson in like <laughs> one of the most famous clips ever in Monday Night Football. But he got a 10-year contract with the Seattle Seahawks for $11 million. Now, I don't know how much he actually got paid of that after the uh, injury settlement, but nobody at this time was getting 10-year deals. Now you don't even see 10-year deals. But he parlayed this skipping the draft to go to the supplemental draft and actually you know, got a decent deal out of it. Even though he's playing for a team that he didn't want to play for, he actually wanted to play for the Raiders because right. he felt that the Raiders fit his whole mantra. But that did not work out for him, but he got paid. All this shit happened, but it didn't really pave a way for many other players. You'd figure over the years that somebody else would try to do this. I think the only other guy that tried something similar that wasn't newsworthy was maybe like uh, Maurice Claret from Ohio State tried to do something sort of similar and didn't get drafted and then held out to the next year or whatever the fuck happened with him. But this does not happen often. The no. NFL is a juggernaut. You've. If you're getting picked, you just take whatever team is going to pick you. You're not controlling your destiny there, but he did. Unless you're a Manning. Yeah, yeah unless you're a Manning. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> quarterbacks is a different story. Because Elway did, Elway did the same thing. True. Mm-hmm. But that's what I got. So we're going uh, the contract holdout, or not even hold, contract holdout, just a straight up holdout for a contract from Roger Clemens. And the uh, the skipping of the NFL draft and not getting his stuff in for the deadline, Brian Bosworth going to the supplemental draft in the NFL. All right, Joe Finley, what are your sports offerings? Okie dokie. Well, a Monday in December is not a sports-heavy day. I'll start there. Um, So choices weren't abound. Uh, The first thing I got here is a bit of an oddity more than anything. Uh, There were two NBA games on this day. Uh, the Utah Jazz went against the Knicks. Seattle Supersonics went against the Bullets. Now, this is 
kind of the peak of all of these teams, Carl Malone, John Stockton, uh, Sean Kemp, Gary Payton, uh, Patrick Ewing, Do- John Starks, they're all there. They're all playing. Uh, George Mirasan of my giant on the bullets, just in case anybody cares. Um, but the only thing was just in this game, in this one day where only two games were played uh, with all these major stars, both games ended 103 to 96. It was just a, it was just a strange oddity. Wow. That huh. was, uh, it, it did get covered on, on, on ESPN for the thing, just being a, Hey, just these two games. It was like essentially all-star games on both sides because of all the amount of like future hall of famers you potentially had. I know Sean Kemp probably blew that opportunity, but <laughs> it blew up his weight, but <laughs> yeah, it was, so it was just a weird thing that of just having the two games like that end in the exact in the exact same score. Uh the other one, so now you you've got football and you've got Monday, so you only have one choice as to what the game <laughs> is. Uh but this ended up being a very interesting game. Uh Dallas Cowboys faced off against the Philadelphia Eagles on Monday night football. Uh Dallas Cowboys were in a two-game losing streak and were uh in in danger of uh, not winning the NFC East. Uh, the Giants were ahead of them. They ended up winning this game 23-17. to And this began, this was the first game of their five-game winning streak for the remainder of the regular season where they beat the Giants by a single game to win the division. And that is the year they went on to win the Super Bowl for the first time in 15 years. This game was the was kind of the launching pad for their path to the playoffs and eventually the Super Bowl. All right. All right. So, Man Crush, you had uh, Roger Clemens holding out a contract and Brian Bosworth skipping the NFL draft uh, to enter the supplemental draft. And, Joe, you had a couple of uh, random NBA games that didn't end so random and a 103-96 to score on both games. That's odd. Uh, And then uh, Monday Night Football with the Cowboys and the Eagles. Not a huge uh, Eagles fan, not a huge Cowboys fan, but uh, it was a big game for that season. And maybe just that particular season. But, uh, geez, it's really difficult to judge this because you got two live events versus two sports happenings. Which had more impact? I'm probably going to have to say long-term, 87 on this one. What were more people paying attention to at the time? Probably the games rather than the news. But I think in retrospect, man... I think I'm going to have to, again, go with Man Crush in 87 for another one-pointer on this, just because I think that Brian Bosworth thing definitely has legs. Like you said, it's not something that happens quite often, and I think it almost kind of set a reverse precedent. If it would have went a little bit better for Mr. Bosworth, I think you would have seen more people try to play that uh, that Madonna card, you know, and try to determine what teams they were going to go to. But like Man Crush said, I don't think we've seen a mu- as much of that because, again, it didn't work out that great. He didn't get drafted by exactly who he wanted to go to. So, And he just missed out on the USFL, too, so he lost that leverage right. that he had. Right. You know? He tried so. to leverage the situation, much like Herschel Walker leveraged his situation, and it, it just didn't work out. I think that's a little more important culturally than a, a random Monday Night Football game, even though that was a huge game for that day. So for on those reasons, I got to give this one for Man Crush just for a little bit more staying power. I hear that. That's right. Got the staying power. (laughs) Got some stank on it. All right. 
So, Man Crush, you retain control of the board. Where would you like to go? All right. And I apologize if I'm a little long-winded on these. I had a problem with my note system. So I have no notes on this. So I'm just spurring off the top of my head with with the sports (laughs) news. So if I'm just going with it, I'm going with it. So I'm going to go back to the other one that I have no notes for. And that would be news for April 13th of 1987. And I'll begin that off. And this is where you can see where I'm really there's a lot of things I could have I could have picked. I could have picked where they were giving out condoms in prison so AIDS didn't get spread. But that's not fun. Nobody wants to hear that shit. Oh, that sounds pretty fun. I could have picked, uh, <laughs> you know, like uh, somebody like declaring for the presidency, like the election. No, nobody fucking cares. And they didn't win anyway. So who cares? So let's go to something that was more fun. And this is the announcement of. The ALF cartoon to NBC. I'll just read the news story because I actually have the news story. ALF, NBC's fuzzy outcast from the planet Melmac, is becoming a one alien growth industry. This fall, the puppet will become a cartoon character on NBC's Saturday morning schedule. And a script is being written for a big screen ALF movie. But that probably won't begin rolling until the sitcom's second season is wrapped. Both will almost certainly be prequels to the aliens' earthbound adventures on Monday nights in the Tanner household. Meanwhile, ALF's ratings keep improving and sales of dolls and posters are booming, with the ALF poster reportedly outselling such hot draws as Bon Jovi and Top Gun. Don't be surprised if the sarcastic hairball starts appearing on pajamas, lunchboxes, bedspreads, what have you. The alien invasion has begun. And I will tell you this. In 1987, every kid in my school either wanted or had a talking ALF doll. Because whether you you believe it or not, in 1987, for kids, the ALF show was enormous. Yeah. They all wanted it. So I, I remember even in our class, we we uh we got a camera that they lent us and people brought their ALF dolls in. There were not every kid had one, but like I said, every kid wanted one. But there's probably like five of them that we had. And we, the teacher let us record our own ALF, like kind of like sitcom with the dolls as the actors. And we had enough of them where each one had their own name and shit. So like it, this was huge at the time. But the thing I found interesting about this is they did have this cartoon came out this uh, the following September. But the movie never happened. No, I'm of still course, waiting. We for got. It. Yeah, they gave us Project ALF in 96, but we never got the big screen ALF movie. I guess there was turmoil on the set. Like the, the cast didn't get along or whatever. So it only lasted like four or five seasons, Yeah, but we never got that movie and it was planned to get, you know, get started after that second season. So I think that story in itself is kind of cool. Cause now we got this cartoon that's starting in September that went on for, I think it was two seasons and 28 episodes. And I'm sure it was syndicated forever. And then, uh, you know, the mention of this movie that never got started or never transpired, which is cool to go back and, and see shit like that. And just validation to the end of that, where it says that you're going to see it on pajamas, lunchboxes. You did. It was everywhere. Mm. Alf was everywhere. Yeah. Uh, can I, I don't mean to interrupt your thing, but can I interject with a, with a positive Alf story? Go for it. Um, we had, I had one of the Alf talking Alfs uh, when I was a kid and we had the tapes that came in it. Same with the Teddy Ruxpins and all that kind of thing. Uh, but the main thing we used it for, uh, my grandfather had just recently, my grandmother had passed and he moved to Arizona. And so he would send every now and again an audio tape. 
So, you know, just to beat the long distance, he would just like tell everybody what was going on and just let everybody hear his voice. So what he we would do is we would regularly get together all the family. And if one of those tapes had come, we would sit down Alf in front of all the kids and we'd pop his tape in and then we'd listen to Grandpa talk through Alf. That's that amazing. So that that was our like, we still talk about that to this day, actually. Do you but still that's, have uh, the tapes. I don't have the tapes. No, oh, I don't even. I, they weren't like for us. They were like were given to my parents or like other parents and stuff like that. And they just, I don't know if they recorded stuff back and sent it back or if they made sick mixtapes. I don't know. <laughs> they just taped over it. They're like, are they <laughs> done with this? That's a good story, though, man. That's uh, that's pretty cool. Maybe we should get one of those talking elves and get a Teddy Ruck spin. And just uh, record ourselves for the show and then just videotape Teddy Ruxpin and Alf doing the show for us. That's not a terrible idea. It's funny. I think for this birthday, I wanted an Alf doll because, like I said, all, all the kids had one and wanted one. And my best friend Brent had one and I wanted one. And I'm pretty sure I got GoBots for this birthday. <laughs> Almost positive that this was a GoBot birthday, uh, which was already long in the tooth because that shit came out like 84 and my parents would just buy me GoBots, not even Transformers. Anyhow, let's get on to my second story. And this is where my my locality will uh, will show up here. Uh, the article is, Beasties Won't Party in Poughkeepsie. <laughs> <laughs> Civic Center Board Cancels Group's Offensive Act. Uh, so if you're from this area, the Mid-Hudson Civic Center in Poughkeepsie, New York, is probably the biggest outside of New York City venue where you're going to get acts like the Beastie Boys or, you know, Marilyn Manson played there, Corn, all these big bands back in the day. But what happened here is they scheduled, they contracted. Beastie Boys were coming off License to Ill. Their first album is huge. And they were playing at the Civic Center, or supposed to. But during their tour, they had these blow-up cocks on stage. Huge <laughs> blow-up phalluses. And they would drink beer on stage. They had girls dancing around in bikinis. And Poughkeepsie found that to be too vile of an act and went and canceled the, this whole concert. So they had to like give back, you know, give refunds to all the people that bought tickets. And the kicker was there was a contract. So they still had to pay the Beastie Boys, even though they didn't play. They had to pay them to come out there. And just think of all the years forward that they fucked this up. Where the Beastie Boys, I'm sure, never came back to the Mid Hudson Civic Center after this. And if you look at the 90s, I remember plain as day. I think it was like 94, 95, maybe whenever uh, Marilyn Manson first really got popular. Like beautiful, not beautiful people, like uh, Sweet Dreams came out. He played at Mid Hudson Civic Center and lit the fucking dressing room on fire. <laughs> for like thousands of dollars worth of damage. Yet they let him play there, but the Beastie Boys did not. In 1987, they canceled that whole thing. Pretty fucked up. And the Beastie Boys in 1987 were huge. Like I was only in like second grade at the time, and I still knew Fight for Your Right. Like, you know, everybody knew this shit. But because they had blow up penises and girls in bikinis and drinking beer, shit got kanked. Oh, so that's my other story. Heaven forbid. Yeah, seriously. What is this, 2019? All right, Joe, what do you got for news north of the border? All right. Well, the news is all over the place. Uh, I've got a good news and a bad news. <laughs> um, Man Crush, I'm going to let you choose. Which one do you want to hear first? 
Uh, let's go with the good news. Let's hear some good news first. Okay. Well, on this day in South Africa, uh, criminal convictions that were considered human rights abuses from apartheid were deemed eligible for amnesty by the Truth and Reconciliation Commu uh, Commission, who were formed as they were slowly becoming a democratic nation. Uh, so at this point, so, you know, literally you would go to jail for interracial marriage. You would go to jail for any number of horrifying things that are in no way crimes uh, because of, you know, the rule of apartheid and stuff like this. And now uh, as they were becoming a democratic nation and other people like Amnesty International and such had stepped in and they had finally worked towards getting justice for the people who had been placed behind bars for all these injustices. And so this was, this was the first day that you were able to claim amnesty for these, uh, quote unquote crimes. Uh, there were some lawsuits that had taken place that, uh, tried to get it extended. And later on, it did get extended and it went to 1994. Uh, but during this period, the amnesty was still, you were still eligible to claim amnesty, but that was one of the first major steps uh, into undoing apartheid and just undoing a lot of injustice in South Africa. So that's good news. That is good news. What is the bad news? Oh, the bad news. We're going to have to go to Massachusetts in a really rough time when a uh, priest, so we already know where this is going. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> uh, James R. Porter was convicted of molesting 28 boys and sentenced to 18 to 20 years in prison. He had actually started doing this in the 60s when he came into... Joe, you know this is not the true crime episode, right? <laughs> I know it's not, but I, I won't even lie to you. If you, like, if you research the what happened on this day in... These are the two things that happened on this day, <laughs> other other than Don Amici dying. So he was just like, he might have died of shock from this, uh, but they, I, I didn't see what he died of. So it could have been this, uh, but he had uh, been at this for quite some time. He had been arrested in 1963 for doing this, and they put him in a mental institution because it wasn't treated appropriately criminally at the time and he got back out and got right back into his church and in the 70s he actually directly contacted the pope and was asked to be released as a priest and he did that and then uh he ended up getting married and having kids and then after that marriage went away you found out that he was he was uh mental mentally and physically abusive to his kids and his wife and it was just this guy was a legit monster. And then finally, an altar boy came came through in uh, 1990 and exposed him for this. And then he faced trial uh, when all was said and done. He was convicted for the 28 counts. But when all was said and done, he was just shy of 100 cases oh Damn. claimed against him. Uh, this was one of the biggest individual cases in the whole Catholic priest Me Too movement. God, I would and hope so. You would, yeah, you would hope so. And uh, his crimes were specifically noted in the uh, movie Spotlight, yep, which was all about uncovering that as you know that scandal as a whole. And he that was one of the key cases that was uh, referenced in that movie. So those are my two bad, good news and bad news. Man, I should have started with bad news. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, so let's go to the ruling for this round. Uh, Man Crush, the ALF cartoon, and uh, the Beastie Boys burning some bridges outside of Brooklyn. ALF was huge. Really liked the ALF cartoon. Not as good as the series. And uh, a huge Beastie Boys fan. How can you not be? I don't know what was up the city of Poughkeepsie's ass at that time. I think that would have been an incredible show to see. Joe, you had uh, the the first day of being able to claim amnesty in Africa. And, uh, geez, the Boston Priest scandal. Both of those stories has major legs. So, Joe, I got to give you this final one-point round. Both of those stories have legs and were made into movies. But on Man Crush's side, we never got the Elf movie. Maybe if we got the Elf movie, I would have given that over the Priest's just because it's elf but finley you get this round where would you like to go for our next category oh i kill me um that that was my best elf i apologize (laughs) if it was not good enough Uh, let us check out the world of music all righty so i'll start with the album release uh it was the cross of changes by enigma with their famous track return to innocence and everybody doesn't remember. <laughs> See, I was I was uh, silent because I was hoping you'd sing it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he he does that after he does the uh, the priest molesting boys. Well, I I feel like weird. I, actually, as I'm doing this, I'm starting to feel like this album would be the perfect soundtrack to the news that I'm delivering in this. Yeah, that's terrible. Episode. That's fucking terrible. Uh, but uh, but yeah, that is uh, arguably one of their most recognizable songs and it's a little more new wavy than i usually go but (laughs) such is december 6th in releases (laughs) um our billboard top five songs uh number five we have drs and gangsta lean salt and peppa's shoop was out on this week uh ace of bass and all that she wants number three Janet Jackson sitting at number two with again, and actually the following week took over as number one, but in his final week at number one, after five weeks of being at number one, the song that was the bane of my existence at school dances, Meatloaf's I Would Do Anything for Love, parentheses, but I won't do that. What won't he do? It's definitely pegging, but... uh, It's docking is what I heard. Oh, <laughs> no, I, I actually heard he will do that. Yeah. <laughs> Him and Gary Busey did it on the Celebrity Apprentice. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so that actually was Meatloaf's final uh, week at the top spot there. And like I said, uh, Janet Jackson's again took it over. It was actually a really interesting period of time uh, for for this stuff. I think... I think it's also a little interesting because this is kind of that age where you start to kind of discover music. Like you're aware of music at a younger age, but now you're getting into your, the beginning of your adolescence and you're starting to discover it. So I remember like hearing all these songs like a lot because you were listening to the radio a lot. Uh, and then we wanted to talk about the top album, the billboard top album for this week, uh, was Pearl Jam's Verses. So don't call me daughter. <laughs> no, it's don't call me daughter. 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 My friend here. <laughs> I I did a I did a Pearl Jam concert the other day when we were just at a pool party and I just sang like ten Pearl Jam songs in a row without saying a single lyric. <laughs> I don't think anybody enjoyed it but me, but I was not stopping. 
Shut up, Joe. <laughs> so yeah, Enigma are my top five uh, songs. And Do you have the top, top five album? albums? I didn't have the top five albums. Okay. No. I, I, I looked it up and it only had the top album and I couldn't find any place to look and see the list. Gotcha. All right, so Man Crush, over to you for the music round. All right. So when it comes to music, I, I didn't get the luxury of selecting something that I'd listen to it as, as a nine-year-old here because we had to pick the date and actually some shit did come out on the date. So I had to go with it. Uh, however, there are singles from this album that I've heard on the radio and I'm sure it was stuff that my older sister was listening to at the time. So on April 13th, 1987, we get an album that has four top 20 hits, three times platinum, went on to sell 15 million albums worldwide. Uh, it's actually the band's second largest album of all time. So it's not too shabby. And it's also their last studio album that we get from Lindsey Buckingham, Stevie Nicks, Christine McVie, John McVie, and Mick Fleetwood, otherwise known as the most successful lineup as a group, otherwise known as Fleetwood Mac, with their album Tango in the Night. Uh, it's not the it's not as big as the Rumors album, but it did sell 15 million copies, and this is the last time that these five did a uh, studio album together. Uh, hits from this album, you had Little Lies, of course. Lies, tell me sweet little lies. That's the only one I really know. That and uh, actually, no, I know everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> I've like heard that. that in a bathroom. <laughs> All right, then you had uh, Big Love, uh, Seven Wonders, a huge album in the UK. Actually, it went eight times platinum over there. And after being on the charts for so long, they actually ended up releasing two more singles from the album, uh, Isn't It Midnight and Family Man. Pretty big album. Nothing that I was listening to at the time, but Fleetwood Mac, you know, it's an epic group and the last time that they were together, of course, they were all doing cocaine at the time and shit. So Stevie Nicks' voice is quite different from the way she sounded, yeah. uh, you know, on rumors and everything else. But, you know, it was mostly uh, Lin Lindsey Buckingham putting this album together. And I think the story was that he was going to do this as a solo album. And, you know, everyone just put aside the cocaine for a week or whatever and then recorded this for, I think it, it was like 18 months or some shit. It took forever to record this thing. Uh, but it was a big album for them. Uh, anyhow, let's get into Hot Singles. Top five, we had Died in Your Arms from The Cutting Crew at number one. Uh, we had Looking for a New Love from Jody Watley. Great song here, Don't Dream It's Over, Crowded House. Uh, La Isla Bonita from Madonna. And then rounding that out, we had Sign of the Times by Prince, which was actually recorded at paisley park which we had was a trivia question on our live trivia that we had just shit what was that last week that was last week uh we had our live trivia on cast box we're gonna do that again probably in a couple weeks so look out for that on our facebook uh then looking at top lps and this is where it's it's fucking monumental because my first two are both certified diamond uh, my third one is 12 times platinum the fourth one's three times platinum. So we got Joshua Tree at number one by U2, of course. Licensed to Ill by the Beastie Boys, which we just talked about. Slippery When Wet by Bon Jovi at three. Look What the Cat Dragged In by Poison at four. And then five, rounding it out, which actually did go uh, multi-time platinum too. Graceland by Paul Simon. So this is my top five on either side. So that's what I got, Mark. All righty, so let's take a look at this round. Uh, wow. Joe, Enigma, really? Wow. 
So yeah. Wait, how does it go you, again? You got it. Yeah, I have one day to deal with, <laughs> and it was, and it was this, or there was another live album that was like um. A mess that I did that I did. I can't remember who it was. You almost would have been better off pulling out a commercial jingle that got released that day (laughs) because Enigma might be one of the most atrocious songs from the 90s. (laughs) All That She Wants, Ace of Bass. That was actually a B side from the single. I know this because my dad went out and bought the cassette single of Ace of Bass. And then Shoop, that's a solid song right there. I mean, you can't Mm -hmm. go wrong with some salt and pepper. Salt and pepper. Salt and pepper. And uh, meatloaf. Uh, Man, that song's just annoying as fuck. Love it, though. (laughs) But yeah, you're right. It's one of those. It's the bane of every high school dance or middle school dance ever. And I'll tell you why, because I did have to dance to this thing a lot. Uh, It was a long song. It always ended up being the song where you would get roped into dancing with somebody. And it has the craziest tempo changes in the history of music minus maybe St. Anger from Metallica. <laughs> and it's just like, cause you're sitting there and you're, you know, you're swaying to a beat. You don't really know how to dance. You're 12 year old. You're not dancing. And then all of a sudden it goes, I would do anything. And like, now you're just swaying to that beat. It's you're just waltzing. Like, yeah, pretty much. When that came out in 93, that song replaced another song that was the had the exact same problems and issues as you just described at every high school dance. And that would have been <laughs> Stairway to Heaven, which was always traditionally the last song at every dance. But it's got that weird tempo you, change in the middle. Your fucking dances had Stairway to Heaven yeah. as the last dance? Every dance I Where ever went to. Where the fuck did you go to school, bro? <laughs> <laughs> and then... In 93, all of a sudden it stopped and it was always fucking meatloaf and you never heard Stairway. So kind of sucked. And then and then it was a couple years later and then it was um, Brian Adams. Yes. Um, Oh, yeah. Oh, man. The Robin Hood song. At least that that didn't have the awkward tempo change that the previous two had. Fair. So, all right. So let's take a look at this. You know, you got Man Crush. You got Fleetwood Mac, Tango in the Night. Not a solid, solid album from Fleetwood Mac, but it did have a couple of good singles off of it, which is kind of... 15 million copies worldwide. That's a pretty solid fucking album. Well, I'm saying, like you said, not as big as Rumors. And where I'm going... Oh, well, yeah, it's monumental big, though. And where I'm going with this is I really hate to compare the two, but I'm going to make the comparison because it's the only time you'll ever hear someone compare Fleetwood Mac and Pearl Jam, but uh, versus not the biggest Pearl Jam album. It was kind of a disappointment for me coming off 10, much like Tango in the Night was kind of a disappointment coming off of Rumors. So I know it's a stretch to compare those two, but that's what I got to go with that. Uh, But Man Crush, everything else that was playing on the radio at that time was absolute huge. You had the cutting crew. I just died in your arms tonight, which I always thought was a song about flatulence. (laughs) You know, and then, just yeah, poison on there. Just that's the stuff I wanted to listen to. Not fucking Enigma, Meatloaf, and uh, Ace of Base. So Man Crush, ah, man, I'm sorry, Joe. I got to give this one to Man Crush, just because I think some of that music had longer staying power. The Pearl Jam album is absolutely huge, but for me, it was kind of a letdown, much like the Fleetwood Mac thing did. So those canceled those out. So I had to go with. What was on the radio? What was being played? What was your top songs and singles at the time? More I wanted to listen to in 87. 
Well, let me just get this straight. Our albums are Fleetwood Mac against Enigma. Oh, right? geez. It wasn't even against yeah. Pearl yeah. Jam? No, no. Pearl Jam was no. just on his uh, his top album. That was my list. top album. Oh, geez. Like- well, that makes it even fucking worse, man. You just <laughs> buried them. I, I almost gave it to him because that Pearl Jam album, but I'm like, Ugh. it was so disappointing. <laughs> but Enigma? I'm sorry. It's not <laughs> happening, man. And you you missed out uh, second on that thing. I I know Joshua Tree is one of those albums like people love it or hate it. I think you don't like it, but second you got License to Ill right there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's one of my all time favorite albums right there. Like I said, yeah. just in that eighty seven time frame, just more songs that I think became more iconic when you think about the eighties as a whole. And when you think about the 90s as a whole, I don't think any of those are showing up on a mixed best of the 90s CD. No, I, I would I would uh, concede to that. <laughs> That's a uh, it's it is what it is. You're a victim of the times when you can't like when you're just listing what's there instead of picking. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I, that's all good. I, I'm on board with that license tale. I mean, Jesus. All right, man, crush. We're down to the TV round. Why don't you close us out? You got control of the board. Would you like to start off the round or would you like to defer? I can do What's the score? The score is four to one right now, right? The score is four to one. I didn't want to bring it up, but it is four to one. That's right. We're, 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 we're playing through. Um, go ahead, Joe, because I'm curious what was in 93. Okie dokie. So my uh, big piece of TV news, I'm going to take you to Monday Night Raw. And what was Bobby Heenan's final regular like final performance as a a regular tv performer with the wwe uh wwf wwe and whatnot uh where gorilla monsoon came out at the end of the broadcast and fired him on air took him out by the scruff of his neck and threw him out the door and threw his luggage out behind him now the story behind it was uh bobby heenan had been in bad health he had broken his back quite some time ago uh, almost a decade prior, but he couldn't handle the uh, strenuous schedule anymore of being a regular performer on a weekly show, and he had basically asked to get out. So Didn't he go to WCW of- after that? He did. Well, here's here's yeah. where we go. So his intention was to retire. Then the WCW comes up to him and says, we would like you to come to us, and he says, no, I'm, I left for a reason. And I can't do the schedule and blah, blah, blah. And they said, we can provide you with a much more lenient schedule and we will provide you with health insurance, Mm. which was something that the WWF was not providing anybody at the time. Still isn't. So, (laughs) yeah, there you go. So that's where they stood. And he, I guess, just didn't have a choice. He did not have an enjoyable tenure at uh ww or wcw he was uh known to be pretty unhappy there one of my all-time favorite moments uh was when he was announcing it was a match between uh, scott hall and roddy piper and roddy piper had stayed in alcatraz prior to the fight and then he leaves alcatraz and then uh Scott Hall comes out and he's got some shirt on. It's got some sponsor name on it. And he goes, uh, Dusty Rhodes is the other announcer. He goes, what does that say? That say Alcatraz. <laughs> and then Bobby Heenan. And then Bobby Heenan just, you can hear him just go, 
no <laughs> just like that's not what it says and you could just hear the frustration in his voice and then like and then go back to dusty rose i'm just saying that's where his mind's being and like all that kind of stuff and you just but you could you could hear he was unhappy the entire time he he took it due to circumstance and due to opportunity uh his intention was to leave and be done with wrestling and that be the end of it uh he has since appeared on multiple well prior to his passing he had appeared on multiple reunion episodes of raw and the like and wrestlemanias and he was a wwe hall of famer and all that good stuff uh but yeah that was the final time he appeared as a regular on their program and he was one of their greatest manager of all time arguably and arguably one of their greatest announcers of all time so that was that was my tv news uh and then i've got my top five rated shows for that uh for that specific day uh, number five was uh, the, an episode of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Uh, the Nanny came in at number four, which I'm shocked that Fresh Prince didn't beat The Nanny. It's on them, I guess. Uh, Murphy Brown comes in at number three. Very popular show at the time. Had a very high uh, rating. It only was just eked out by the two things in front of it. Uh, number two was a special CBS presentation of Frosty the Stone Snowman, the 1960s Christmas classic. And Monday Night Football, as it usually does, wins out the night with a 25.6 share. That's what I was going to ask you. What was the share? I was just curious yeah. in the year difference. And I'll give it was, mine. It was, yeah, it was 25.6. Uh, Frosty the Snowman was 22. Murphy Brown was 20.8. Uh, the Nanny was 18. I didn't see the point what. And then uh, Fresh Prince was 16.8. Okay. Wait till you see the disparity. In yeah. the years, because obviously there's more channels by 1993 than there is in 87. More people got cable and all that stuff. So it's it's a quite a bit difference. It's interesting. All right, Man Crush, over to you. Close out this game. What do you got for TV? It's interesting it, from what just what Joe just said. All right, so we had uh, MacGyver was a rerun. Alf was a rerun. Valerie was new. My sister Sam was new. Newhart was new as was designing women with that said my eyes were locked on one program on april 13th 1987 and that was wwf primetime wrestling which appeared on the usa network at 8 p.m and that sounds pretty damn familiar to what joe just said that's because this is the show that led to raw matter of fact the last week of this show the week after it became monday night raw so we had WWF primetime wrestling in USA. Uh, it came on from eight to 10 that night. Uh, this episode falls within the Heenan monsoon era. So this is where these guys were the only announcers on the show. Uh, of course, they like later on, they brought in Roddy Piper and they brought in uh, Vince used to pop in. And then, like towards the end, it was like kind of like a roundtable discussion show. Yeah, and they had Macho there was Man fucking, for a while. Yeah, it was, it was weird. But this was probably the best era of primetime because you had Heenan and Monsoon, which, in my opinion, is probably my favorite two commentators together. Yeah, because it was the perfect babyface neutral and super heel. And it was fun, you know. Uh, but anyways, we got April 13th, 1987 on this episode. We got uh, the tag champs. We had the Heart Foundation versus the Rougeos. Uh, Then we got Mr. Fuji for the first time in face paint because now he's the manager of Demolition. That's right. 
Uh, so we had uh, the Killer Bees versus Demolition on that episode. We had the famous, jo- in my opinion, he was a jobber. He was like a glorified jobber. Uh, Coco Beware versus Danny Davis. Remember that whole referee Danny with, Davis? Yeah, dangerous Danny. Davis. <laughs> dangerous Danny Davis. Who's the worst fucking wrestler? Oh, terrible. And it took the funny thing in this match. It took Coco Beware 15 minutes to defeat him, and then afterwards, Monsoon was going on this whole tirade of how could it take him 15 minutes to defeat a guy that doesn't even know how to wrestle? And then to finish out the episode, you had as Monsoon would call him back in the day. The not-so-macho man, Randy Savage, versus Junkyard Dog for the Intercontinental title. And how did that match end, you ask? Uh, Well, actually, it began with uh, Monsoon interviewing Elizabeth and Macho Man coming over to him and wanting to start a fight. And then the Junkyard Dog jumps out of the ring, and they just chase each other around the ring until Junkyard Dog is counted out. And gets the loss. That's the entire fucking match. And, of course, uh, Macho Man keeps the Intercontinental title. And this is right after uh, WrestleMania 3. was a couple weeks prior. But, yeah, so that's uh, that's what I had there. So it was pretty interesting that you picked that. Uh, but, yeah, let's count down backwards like you did it. So uh, my show number five, we had Growing Pains. Came in with a 23.2 at 5. Uh, four, we had Moonlighting with a 23.5. Cheers with a 25.3 at number three. Family Ties, again, we got another MJF popping up here uh, with a 31.1. And then, of course, on the top, The Cosby Show, which dominated the 80s at a 32.4, which equated to 28.3 million homes watching that show. It's fucking insane. But that's what I have for April 13th, 1987, and the week that was. Off to you, Mark. All right, so let's recap here. The final round. Uh, man, Monday Night Raw from Joe in 93 with uh, Heenan's final episode of Raw. Man, I love Bobby Heenan, my all-time favorite wrestling commentator. You know, the best heel ever in managing and on the mic, in my opinion. And then you take a look at uh, what was on the the boob tube that week. He had the Fresh Prince, the Nanny, Murphy Brown, uh, Frosty the Snowman, because, you know, it is December. And uh, Monday Night Football, again, always dominating in the ratings. We'll match it up with what Man Crush had. Uh, You had the Nanny and Moonlighting, Cosby in there at number one. Family Ties, and, of course, my all-time favorite TV I, show. I didn't Cheers. have the nanny, though. I had Growing Pains. Growing Pains. Sorry, he had the nanny. <laughs> that would have been a little weird in ninety in 87 for the nanny. It would have been called Mr. Belvedere. <laughs> true. Very true. And then, oddly enough, more wrestling. WWF primetime. So this is kind of a hard one. Uh, I got to cancel out the two wrestling things. So I got to go look at what's on TV. You know, you got the Fresh Prince. Growing Pains, Moonlighting, The Nanny, Cosby versus Monday Night Football, Cheers, Murphy Brown. For my personal dollar, for me, I'm going to go with 87 on this one. Cheers, Cosby Show, Family Ties. I think when we think of television in the 1980s, those three names pop up. Did all of those shows air on the same day? I don't know if they were the same day. Oh. Yeah. Now, this is, I only did, I did tops for the week. Isn't that what you did? I did tops for December 6th, 1993. Oh, I couldn't get tops for yeah. one day. It was just yeah, uh, I, the Nielsen's oh, wow. were like a week. 
Okay. So, yeah, I'm going to have to go with Man Crush on this one. I'm sorry, Joe. You lose the championship. Congratulations, Man Crush, winning the championship back on this one. But in the long run, I think for my viewing pleasures, I was not a Murphy Brown fan. I've seen that episode of Frosty a thousand times by then. (laughs) I could give a shit. And the nanny? No. I I value my ears way too much (laughs) than to watch that show. But I will watch Family Ties, Moonlighting, The Cosby, Growing Pains, and uh, a little show called Cheers. And then in in ninth place, I had Who's the Boss? That was in ninth place? That was in ninth place. That's because there was... There was some, oh, and Golden Girls was in sixth because you had like a 60 minutes in there that like kind of knocked stuff out. There was a uh, Chrysler showcase that came on. Yeah. But yeah, Who's the Boss was still on there and Golden Girls. It's huge shows. I just think 93 for Joe really fell in that weird <laughs> time frame where if it was just a few more years, you'd have some of those iconic 90s TV shows that we remember that would have matched up so much better with the iconic 80s shows that you had, Nick. But, you know, I know we got the uh, Fresh Prince in there, but, you know, that was kind of the start of that for Joe. I think if we would have went 94 or 95, you might have been able to take this round. But, Man Crush, congratulations. You are once again the Dueling Decades champion. It's nice to be Congratulations. <laughs> so that's where we're going to end this episode. Let us know what you think on social media. You can head over to facebook.com forward slash dueling decades, where you can continue the conversation online. And while you're on our Facebook page, pay attention to dueling decades trivia. There's different ways you can play trivia and climb the leaderboards every day. We have picture trivia on our Facebook story. We're also doing dueling decades, audio trivia right here in the RSS feed along with the podcast. If you answer these questions, you can climb the Dueling Decades leaderboards and prepare yourself for when we have our next live trivia night. So until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Infirmary Media.